This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Twelve years. That's how much time scientists within the United Nations say that countries have to make drastic moves to combat climate change where the planet faces some dire consequences. This includes rising sea levels, drought, more damaging storms, coral reefs dying, famine, among other things. The report by the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says economies must make transformations at a speed not historically documented ever before. But with the U.S. being the world's second largest polluter and the president who pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, will this be possible? Discuss what this means. We are joined by Daniel Kamen, who's a professor and chair of the Energy Resources Group at the University of California at Berkeley. He served in the Obama administration as science envoy for the U.S. State Department, and he's been part of the U.N. panel since 1999. And also joining us here in studio, Brian Berkey, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton and also of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is also a visiting scholar at the Edmund J. Safria Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Great to see you, Brian. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan. Dan, great to have you back with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dan, being part of this, take us inside uh, the report and what needs to be addressed. Well, this is uh, a report in a series that the IPCC uh, produces, and that the IPCC shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize for this work of documenting climate change and assessing where we are. And those are really key uh, words to understand what the IPCC does. It doesn't produce new science per se. It assesses and uses material from the published literature to give first a a climate science update as to where we are in terms of observing climate change. And then it, ex- it evaluates and examines where we are in terms of combating it, which by global consensus, except for the United States right now, uh, means reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 80 percent or more by 2050. And that really means uh, what this report came up with, which is that to not just reduced by 80%, but to give us a little more margin. Um, 80% would give us about a two-degree overall climate change, two degrees Celsius. So we've already warmed by one degree, so there's not a lot of headroom left. But this report that came out of the Paris effort highlighted the really high costs of two degrees, which already seems challenging. But the path to get to 1.5 degrees, which came out of something called the High Ambition Coalition, this report is the first international assessment of both how much we would save in terms of cost and damage, both human and environmental, by avoiding two and getting to one and a half, yeah. um, but also the, 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 the likelihood we'll get there based on how much progress we are or are not making, and of course the, the, the challenge that these are numbers which are very hard in any respect because of how quickly we'd have to change the global economy, yeah. but the fact that every bit of delay, and we're seeing a fair amount of delay, not just by the U.S., but mainly by, by us, is why this report came to be, and its findings are really a litany of the challenges and the costs of not meeting this uh, 1.5 degree target. Brian, what's what's your reaction to this report? Because as, as Dan kind of laid out, uh, we know that 
that there is going to be a level of higher warmth to begin with. He's even saying, and this report is saying, that even 1.5 degrees is, is going to be a significant challenge to try and match. Yeah, so uh, there are serious challenges trying to get to 1.5, even trying to get to 2. Um, but what the report highlights is just how bad things would be at 2 degrees at, and even at 1.5. But one of the important things to note is uh, that 1.5 would be much less bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, just some sort of examples. I mean, about $15 trillion less in economic dan damage, significantly less uh, increase in food and water insecurity for people, especially in the tropics. Um, a lot fewer climate migration is likely at 1.5 than at 2. Um, here's another. Uh, the Arctic... Um, would be ice-free at 1.5 degrees uh, only about once every uh, 100 years, uh, whereas at 2 degrees, uh, it would be ice-free about once a decade, uh, which is a pretty massive difference. So, and, I mean, And that one specifically mm -hmm. would go to the, the potential issues surrounding sea level rise of right. having all of this, what what normally has been frozen water, yeah. now becoming unfrozen and making its way to various points around the globe. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a similar worry about uh, ice sheet collapse in Antarctica. Uh, that yeah. would be much more likely at 2 degrees than at 1.5. Uh, and, of course, the associated sea level rise would be much, much worse at uh, 2 degrees. I think the estimate is something like... Uh, likely 10 centimeters of additional sea level rise compared to 1.5. Well, Dan, I mean, it's, it's not only the impact that it's going to have on, on people, uh, on various countries uh, around the globe, but you also bring up in the reporting the impact that it's going to have on a variety of, of creatures that, that are around the globe as well and the impact that they would feel. Well, that's right. I mean, you get the kind of the iconic images of the starving polar bears but that's literally, uh, unfortunately, the tip of the iceberg in the sense that um, we're going to see damages, some of which we expect changes in agricultural productivity, um, changes in bird migration. But we're also then going to see impacts that we don't expect, which is really the big worry. And that is anytime you, you um, deviate a system from its kind of normal state, uh, which we are doing, the surprises are likely to be larger than the predicted changes. And so it's not just, you know, how much does Greenland melt and then change ocean currents and fish productivity and the livelihoods of whales and sea otters and, and things, but what other changes will that uh, affect in our overall system? And so that those costs or surprises, we expect them to be much larger than things we're already thinking about. So the number of worries to human health and ecological health, just multiply every little bit of deviation we get away from our current climate. We, we've talked in the past about the issues uh, around the United States, but maybe more specifically uh, within California, Dan, uh, where you are, about drought. And, and certainly California has been dealing with this now for, for a long period of time. When you think about drought, how significant of a problem is it not only in California, but in some portions around the United States and and, and how this could exacerbate a lot of different uh, different sectors moving forward? Well, that's right. It's really that exacerbation. I mean, California has seen 
massive fires. One percent of the state, or five percent of the state, burned in the last four or five years. Um, thousands of structures destroyed, and reductions in agricultural productivity. And so we are expecting to see more and worse of this, and not just here. We've seen similar droughts: India, Russia, Australia, um, and these have huge impacts both uh, in terms of ecological health but also food production food prices and the more one region suffers the more global trade prices go up so we expect these effects to ripple and when california suffers agricultural losses it will affect prices nationwide same thing as when we have losses in chile and elsewhere and that's exactly what this report really brings into the very stark relief that we are already experiencing climate change and we're seeing just like the little the little ripples, uh, what's to come if we don't change course dramatically are going to be far worse. Brian? Yeah, I mean, uh, these are all kind of additional concerns. But I think one of the m- more important points that, that Dan makes is that uh, there are certain things that we can predict with a reasonable degree of accuracy. But then there are a whole lot of additional things that are likely to be quite bad that we can't predict given what we know now uh the just sort of further effects of uh of the changes in the climate that that we're likely to see uh and so this gives us sort of additional reason to you know do what the report recommends which is to take pretty drastic action in in the near term to to try to avoid these effects well dan getting back to the drought uh issue for a second i believe in in the reporting you talk about the fact that uh, that in terms of looking at this globally, that the Mediterranean would see potentially those countries around the Mediterranean we, would see uh, a significant impact. Why so that area as well? Well, there's two reasons. One is that the Mediterranean's climate is dominated by the movement of air and moisture across northern Africa through the Mediterranean into Europe. And that's one of the strongly affected uh, systems on the planet based on where the winds flow, its location to the equator. And we've already seen incredibly scary versions. The fires that literally drove people into the sea and killed people on the beaches mm-hmm. in Greece are just one example of the sorts of things that when they hit the news, it sounds like it's a it's a huge surprise. Earthquake Florence hits or the fires in Greece hit. Um, and the coverage right you know rightly says this is this is a, a crisis at the moment. But these are all crises that we expect to happen. In fact, they're exactly climate change is going to be causing. And that's really the worry that Brian just highlighted, that these are the things that are in our models now. But all modelers know that what you leave out is bigger than what you include. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Uh, We are joined here in studio by Brian Berkey of the uh, Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania on the phone with uh, Daniel Kamen of uh, the University of California at Berkeley. We're talking about the uh, most recently released UN climate uh, report, uh, talking about some of the issues and and the time frame uh, that needs to be addressed. So I guess let's talk about, Dan, for a second, that that 12-year window and why that 12-year window is really uh, an important window to look at. Well, it comes from a really, unfortunately, simple and painful calculation, and that is that energy infrastructure choices, when you make them, they're billion-dollar investments in dams or power plants or buildings or highways, 
And so you're stuck with them for a very long time. And we know now that we are going to have to reduce emissions by 80 percent by 2050 or ideally earlier. But that means that our choices in 2040 and 2035 are effectively going to be made ahead of time. So every coal-fired power plant or every gas, natural gas plant that leaks that we build now is going to, we're going to be stuck with it during this time. And it's very unlikely people are going to want to voluntarily retire these things early. Plus, every dollar that goes into the technologies we ultimately need to get rid of is a dollar not going into creating new innovative companies, building out energy efficiency, solar power, wind power, energy storage. And that equation really bites harder and harder as you don't make choices now. And so while this 12-year window is getting the attention, what the UN came up with just a few years ago was actually we really needed to see these changes in dramatic effect like we're seeing in California by 2020. So the 2030 is when you really want to see it on the ground. But to do that, we have to back up and do it today. And the U.S. is not going in that direction. And unfortunately, even though we're the worst offender, uh, when we come to the big climate meeting in, in December in Poland, when countries have to report out how much progress have they made, even on the two-degree target, we're going to find out that country after country reports they have not gotten anywhere near where they thought they would be three years after the Paris Accord. So these delays right. really bite. So, uh, and this goes, uh, obviously, Brian, to a lot of decisions that are going to be made, not only by policymakers, but by businesses as well. And, and it does bring up the issue of whether or not the, the businesses themselves may have the better opportunity to spur a lot of this change that, that it, it looks like is necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing we've seen in the U.S. is uh, the business community has been kind of uh, more uh, interested in recent years in taking steps to address climate change than certainly the current administration. Uh, and so, you know, given that we need leadership in, in this country on, on these sorts of issues, I think the business community is one place we have to look. One kind of uh, interesting thing about the recent report is that it talked specifically also about individual actions. Uh, so, I mean, for good reason, there has always been kind of a, a primary focus on policy issues when it comes to uh, trying to address climate change kind of at the global level. Yeah. Um, but the report kind of highlights that we're also going to need something like a, a major cultural shift, uh, in particular in wealthier countries. People are going to have to be more willing to use public transit or at least you know, share cars rather than driving on their own all over the place. Um, people need to do things like eat less meat and other animal products yeah. um, and, you know, uh, live in smaller homes and, you know, cool their homes less and so on. Uh, Which and these are things that, uh, you know, it's hard to get people to be willing to do. But, you know, one thing that the sort of urgency of the issue that the report highlights uh, at least might, you know, kind of bring home to people is that, you know, we're not talking about effects that, uh, you know, will fall on current people's, you know, great, great, great grandchildren or something sure. like this. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people my age who, you know, have young children 
you know, who are going to have to deal with all of these effects when they're young adults, so when they're, you know, when they're having children. And, you know. And then uh, I, I guess, Dan, that's, that's part of the hope is that because the timetables have been moved up on some of these issues, that you are trying to impact the people that are currently living on the planet may still very well be limit, uh, living on the planet even in 20 years' time. Well, that's right. It's a real double-edged sword, right? I mean, you'd like to have more time because doing the transition sensibly and economically efficiently, the more lead time you get uh, benefits you. But, of course, we've seen that people really discount the future very heavily, even when you talk about their kids and their grandkids, as Brian was saying. And making it more immediate, which we've done by our past in action, does mean that we are going to fortunately be alive to see the folly of our ways. The plus side, though, is that um, what, what, what you highlighted before is that businesses, even in the U.S., are much more willing to act than our current government. And part of that is that they believe the science that apparently everyone, except for a few people in the White House, seem to, uh, seem to uh, now totally accept. But they want regulatory certainty. And so if we know we have to move ultimately into a place, place where we price the uh, carbon externalities, which is what the Nobel Prize yesterday was given out for in economics, um, then they would rather see a smart, sensible transition to that that starts earlier and gives them more certainty. And the longer we delay, the harder it's going to be for U.S. companies first to compete and catch up with some international firms that are right. already embarking here, but also the cost will simply be higher for U.S. firms. Because putting these things in gradually, which we've been recommending for decades, now we're going to have to go on a much more of a clean crash course. Well, and when you think about something, Dan, like energy, uh, you know, obviously the last 20 years or so, uh, the want to have more solar in this country is something I think a lot of people believe is a, is a great path to go. And obviously wind energy, uh, being able to, to gain energy through that path as well. So, I mean, it's not like we, we, we just need to enhance some of the things that are already in play that uh, I guess to a degree have run up against a, a little bit of a wall in the last couple of years. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the good news is that um, the process of technological innovation has made solar and wind and now energy storage plus geothermal power, a number of technologies, much less expensive. And so we can get on with the job much more quickly. And in fact, in both 2017 and 2018, the cheapest new power plants in the world weren't nuclear, they were not gas, they were not oil or coal, they were actually solar and wind plants. And we're now seeing something that almost no one forecasts, and that is you can build a solar plant today in many parts of the world and include storage technology, and even that combined cost, so-called baseload renewable, solar and wind plus storage, can be cheaper than the fossil alternatives. And so we are really poised to go. The technology base is there both here in Europe, China, and elsewhere. The challenge, though, is that big infrastructure projects require government clearance, permission, initial subsidies to get anything going. And this administration has turned away from that path of growing these sectors so that they are as competitive here as they are essentially everywhere else in the world. Is it is it possible to take, and I'm sure it is, but I'm thinking of this more from a, a cost perspective, uh, uh, Dan, is it possible for some of the traditional energy companies right now to convert to some of these new technologies and make it financially sensible to do so 
without having to do a total redo. Yeah, this is a great point. This is actually my biggest uh, uh, plea and pitch to the fossil fuel industry. And it's essentially that no one has more expertise in energy systems and big engineering projects, has more PhDs, more engineers um, that are expert in this field than the traditional oil and gas and coal industry. And because the technology costs have come down, they're in the ideal position to actually do financially very well while greening their mix. And we've seen a couple companies. Uh, BP uh, in Europe has made a big push into solar. Um, we've seen some efforts like this. Shell and other companies have done it. Unfortunately, the U.S. oil and gas companies have been far, far slower because the policies here have been much more permissive than they've been in Europe. And so I was recently at a meeting of oil and gas executives, and it was off the record. No one was being attributed for anything. But um, all of them were asked across the table, both European, Chinese, and U.S. companies, what do you think about putting a carbon price in place, which some of that money would go back to these companies? And across the board, the non-U.S. companies all said, yes, there needs to be a price, and it should be reasonably high, 30 40 or more dollars per ton of emissions. The U.S. companies all said no. And that was not a function that their executives weren't as thoughtful, as smart, whatever else as the European and Chinese. It was that they were in a regulatory environment that was not had not pushed them in the past. And right. That means they're primed to do this but they have not yet really taken the lead on this green transition. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments and questions, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132, B-I-Z radio 132, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. To the phones we go right now in New York City. Mark is on the line. Mark, go ahead. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, qu- two quick questions. Uh, first, when, if they're not already, when would banks and insurance companies be calculating some of this risk into their future obligations? And then a second follow-up, you know, the U.S. government is about $21 trillion plus in the hole. Where is the money going to come from, or is it more policy-driven? Okay. I'm going to hang up and listen, listen to the answer. Thank okay. you. Dan? Well, so... Some uh, banks and insurance companies have made it. The so-called reinsurance industry, the industry that insures a lot of big infrastructure projects and banks that have a longer view, um, really led by the European reinsurance companies, started this quite some time ago. But a number of banks, both private and New York State, um, has a green bank. Connecticut has one. They are already putting the price of not just carbon, but what we call the social cost of carbon. The price of carbon on the market is one thing. Then there's also additional costs uh, due to health and things that are not monetized. That price right now, at the federal uh, the federal level, the EPA used to run that effort, was about $30 a ton for the social cost. was higher now. So some banks are already using that. And ironically, oil and gas companies have what they call an internal strike price or a price beyond which they wouldn't do a project based on this environmental impact. And so there are some that do it, um, but it is not widely done in policy, and it's something that until you really get the Federal Reserve and others saying, this will be our cost of carbon, such as the World Bank uses a $30 ton price. We're not going to get it. And the second part of the college question is really interesting, and that is, um, 
what's going to be the cost. And he's, he's right that even these technologies like solar and wind and storage that are much cheaper, and in some cases cheaper than fossil fuel today, you're buying capital, not fuel. So your upfront costs can be higher, even if your long-term costs are lower. So there is going to be a need for capital upfront, and whether that comes out of the federal operating budget, whether this comes out of companies, is very much a question of policy. The good, the good side is that every time we see a significant investment in solar, wind, or storage, we discover the long-term costs are lower. So you save in the long term, but you do have to spend up front. Brian? Yeah, so in terms of the cost, I mean, I think the thing to think about kind of on the whole is kind of what's going to be less costly in the long run, right? And it seems clear, given all of the kind of risks associated with letting climate change get worse, that, you know, we've got compelling reasons to make the investments that we need to make now. And there are kind of policy questions. We can have disagreements about kind of um, how to kind of structure the, uh, you know, the relevant economic policies, uh, you know, in terms of where the money is going to come from and what kinds of incentives to provide to different actors and, and so on. Um, but it seems like uh, thinking that we aren't in a position to make the necessary investments because, you know, say we've got a lot of government debt or something like this seems... Uh, uh, highly short-sighted. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Daniel Kamen from the University of California at Berkeley joining us on the phone in studio with Brian Berkey from here at the University of Pennsylvania and at the Wharton School, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Dan, you mentioned before the, the issues surrounding uh, with climate change with the, the the numerous storms that we see and obviously we're in the midst of of hurricane season here in the united states as well along the east coast and you know we've already seen a couple and we're getting ready to see another one uh, potentially hit the southeast uh, in the next day or so uh how significant of, of a part uh, of all of this are those storms well they're they're certainly being intensified there's still debate whether the number of storms is altered by climate change but the assessment uh, that came out right after Florence was that it was likely 50% stronger because of climate change, because the water was so much warmer and the water is basically a heat engine that drives it. And in fact, there was a, uh, we call it a typhoon, but it's exactly the same thing. It's a hurricane that uh, hit, there was in, yeah. in the China Sea, yep. and that was is equally damaging. So we are seeing a steady stream of these, and we have to chalk up a significant fraction of the billions of dollars that these cost to climate change, which means that if we're going to think about um, what Brian says, the cost of action or inaction, um, we are already seeing the cost of our, our, our lack of action. And we, we're seeing, um, as you say, these storms are about to come in. Last year, there were three storms lined up in a row. So these are damages that are very much climate-driven. Brian? Yeah, so, I mean... When we're thinking about how to factor in the costs of these storms to our kind of assessment of, uh, you know, the costs of action versus inaction, as, as Dan put it, uh, you know, it's important to take seriously these estimates of, you know, how much more intense these storms likely are uh, as a result of, of climate change and kind of how much more damage that causes. It's easy, you know, when we're thinking about 
you know, large investments in mitigation efforts uh, to kind of ignore the fact that uh, failing to engage in those mitigation efforts is going to uh, it, with very high likelihood lead to significantly increased costs as a result of things like storms and droughts and uh, increased food prices yeah. and all of these other kinds of things. It all has to be sort of included in the overall kind of cost-benefit but, analysis. But, but there's also a part of it going back to something we were talking about before, kind of linked to the to the Paris Accord, that you have so many countries that are willing to be a part of this, but you need the leading countries to be a part of this. China, the United States have to really kind of set the standard for other countries to be able to impact. And because I think because of some of the resources that that we have and to a degree, I would think China has as well. We have the ability to bring forth some of these changes to other countries as well in partnership form. Correct. Yeah, so that's clearly right. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is a leader, uh, has a lot of kind of influence uh, in global politics. uh, And so the fact that the U.S. has withdrawn from the Paris Accord and the administration is quite hostile to action on climate change kind of makes a difference in terms of what's possible globally. I mean, we're also seeing the rise of conservative parties in a number of places that, uh, you know, are kind of threatening uh, the progress that was made at Paris. I mean, just one example in the news recently is, of course, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who got over 46 percent of the vote in the first round. Uh, You know, apparently he's uh, uh, in support of uh, potentially opening up parts of the Amazon rainforest to agribusiness, which would be quite bad for uh, a number of reasons. Climate change, uh, really only one of them. Uh, And so, you know, uh, these kinds of political shifts globally, I, I would think, are certainly kind of made worse by what's going on in the U.S. given its influence. Which but, is, uh, it, it's interesting because that tells me that, you know, you have more and more of, of the old line chasing the mighty dollar mm-hmm. around the globe. Yet, as we've kind of laid out here, there are certain examples where you can still chase the almighty dollar, but do it in a different manner and have a benefit for the environment rather than a detriment. So that's clearly right. Uh, I mean, there are ways of uh, you know engaging in profitable business ventures that are uh, environmentally friendly and even you know quite uh, you know important parts of the kind of global effort to to deal with climate change. But you know, as you sort of mentioned earlier, it's not quite as clear that that's true for uh, you know, for example, large fossil fuel companies sure. that yeah. you know have already invested in uh, that business model um, and, you know, would require kind of a large kind of shift in uh, um, in their in their business model to, uh, you know, to move in the direction of, of clean energy. Dan, um, Dan, your thoughts? Well, I mean, we're, we're really seeing this both in the good and the bad with China. Um, China, China was everyone's favorite whipping uh, whipping boy in sense of how polluting and China's building a coal fire pipeline every week and has the worst air quality in the world. And in very short order, China has dramatically improved its air quality, has shifted very strongly to clean energy. And while they have a long way to go, China is the world's largest producer of solar panels, wind turbines, battery electric vehicles. And they're seeing this as a huge transition going on domestically. At the same time, China is also financing the largest investment in infrastructure in world history, the Belt and Road Initiative linking China to Africa, to Middle East and Europe. And China has a much, much poorer record in those places where they are still 
financing coal plants and some of the dirtiest projects while getting credit for greening at home. And they definitely um, launched themselves very strongly on this with a with a carefully thoughtful, thoughtful through policy, of which the Paris Climate Accord was really a culmination. And in fact, President Obama and Premier Xi signed a historic agreement in 2014. It arguably led to the Paris Climate Accord being as big a step forward as it is. And with the U.S. stepping out, it really pushed, it takes off that pressure of co-leaders to outdo each other and be greener and demonstrate that they can do more and do more profitably. With the U.S. advocating that rule, it takes a huge accelerator off that, I guess not uh, accelerator is, is a gas vehicle term we're talking about, takes the accelerator off the electric vehicle pedal, and it really has right. slowed down the global push in this area. Great having you with us today, Dan. Thank you very much for your work, and we will uh, catch up again with you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming yeah, in. Thanks Thank for having you. me on. Daniel Kamen from the University of California, Berkeley. Brian Berkey from here at the uh, University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.